Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 502, with Tomas Rahal of Quality Pies. Be honest to yourself. Be true to yourself. Do the best job you can do. And that's a start. That's why I talk about craft and trade all the time. I'm like, if you're just an excellent person and you do very well at what you do, that's a start. You know, that may not solve world hunger, but it's also not hurting the situation. And you're a stronger person and you can help. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethic Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicsuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Tomas Rehal. Tomas, are you feeling unstoppable I'm today? Feeling, I'm feeling unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. Graduate of the University of Virginia and rumored dance student at the School of American Ballet, Chef Tomas Rahal served as executive chef for a number of restaurants before opening his namesake, Mas Tapas, in downtown Belmar, the VA, in 2002. Mas Tapas continues to surge ahead strongly. However, Chef Rahal has stepped away to focus on his new project, Quality Pies, slated to open in, on Monday, July 2nd. So only three days away, man. Uh, I'm so grateful that you're making time for me right now. I can only imagine what kind of crazy. I, I hope you on. appreciate the sacrifice. I, I could <laughs> be rolling out doughs endlessly you right know, now. I should say thank you for the drink too. What are we drinking? What are we going to be sipping on? During Cheers. This? Cheers. This is an organic cava from Catalonia. From um, where's that bottle? Right there. Uh, from the um, Castel Dage uh, vineyards, um, and uh, it's exquisite, and the the family that makes it is exquisite as well. Beautiful. So, even though I'm not making tapas anymore, <laughs> uh, I still love the food and the culture and the language, and Great. especially the tapas yeah. <laughs> of of the regions um, because it. In- it encapsulates everything that we like. Nice. Well, now that the uh, listeners know what we're drinking, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling let's with go. a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, tell me I can't do something. Okay. Uh, dive into that. I think it's pretty clear, but dive into why that gets you going. Uh, I've sort of always been underestimated my whole life since I was a little kid. You know, I've been told you better not do that. You'll be disappointed. You'll fail. That sort of thing. So that gets me going. So did somebody tell you not to study dance at one point? Oh, certainly. Uh, (laughs) Somebody told me not to audition for the School of American Ballet. And uh, I had a great audition and got selected by the late ballerina Karen von Arldangen and uh, spent a summer and a winter up there. And just it changed your life, you know, to be picked one out of 
5,000 kids in the nation, you know. Uh, I can only imagine. Yeah, it was exciting. But that was a that was a, about 200 pounds ago. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're not here to talk about your dance career, but I am curious on how being uh, a previous dancer has helped you be light on your feet in the kitchen. I'm sure it might have served you. There's a certain amount of uh, untold choreography that goes on <laughs> in a kitchen. And if you've seen a, a team work behind a line... Um, and not just in a brigade, but just any kitchen, uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, instinctive movement that goes on there. Now, a lot of it's repetitive motion as well, but more importantly, you're thinking about your steps and you're trying to execute them. Uh, stepping intentionally. You're stepping intentionally, you're cutting intentionally, you're putting a lot of consciousness there. into what you do so that you don't just go through the motions or no pun intended, cut corners. You know, uh, you want to really be conscious about the people you work with and the people that you're cooking for. Um, so there's a lot of similarity between the arts and, and the culinary arts. I kind of want to go deeper in this before we kind of start w- with where your culinary career started. So get specific about, I mean, you kind of gave some speci- specificities, speci- specificities. That's a hard one to, to, to Speci- get out. <laughs> specificities. Uh, so can you think of anything else, any other ways, uh, that this, this mentality of a dancer has served you? Oh, there's a lot of parallels. You know, um, working as a team, you have to do that in, in ballet companies all the time. Uh, you have to be very egoless and unselfish. Even though you're performing, there is a lot of performance in it, even for people not to see it. But yeah. you can see I'm drawn to open kitchens. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of focus in behind it um, because sometimes you're executing somebody else's recipe. And so just like choreographed steps, you want to be true to that and be as precise and true to the spirit and nature of what they've inspired or were inspired to create for you. And, you know, going to school, American ballet, uh, even for a short period of time, you know, put me close to George Balanchine's vision. And that's the greatest vision to me, uh, in the world of any artist. And so when I work in a kitchen, you know, I'm, I'm channeling Paul Bocuse, you know, I'm channeling, uh, Ferran Adria or Jose Andres, um, or 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 uh, Thomas Keller, or one of these great guys, or locally here, you know, Craig Hartman or Tim Burgess or Vincent Durkane, because you know they've devoted their lives to it, and it's a more importantly, it's a craft. And I tell all my staff, no matter what happens in your life, you've got your craft. When things turn bad for you, turn to your craft, and it'll reward you. When things are going great put that surplus in your pocket and use it for your craft because it will never ever let you down. When you say you channel these people, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, they're 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 inspiring, you know, in the way that masters are inspiring if they're teaching you painting or dance or music. They can distill 50 years of experience in a 5-minute lesson to you or a demonstration. So Mentors I've had in the kitchen, you know, will work on your knife skills and show you how to hold your knife and your grip. But they'll also tell you, like, before you get to that point, this is how you prepare. And, you know, the maxim is take care of your mise en place and your mise en place will take care of you. So that whole French tradition all the way back to uh, Brilliat Savarin and the people that started cooking for the kings, you know, it's a system in that very much jibes with dancing because you need to have a syllabus for the idiom that you're engaged in. So whether it's classical ballet or classical French cooking or Italian rustic cooking, or in my case, rustic Spanish cooking, um, 
infused with a little bit of Spain, uh, Southern American, um, you want that um, you want that inspiration uh, to sort of carry you through. But ultimately, and you'll hear this from a lot of chefs, it's about the prima materia. It's about the materials you're working with. So you have to get excited about that. You have to get excited when the tomatoes are perfect. You have to get excited like you were here when they just delivered some pigs. Yeah. You know, that, that you know what has gone into that, the artistry of, of, of animal uh, husbandry and, and good agriculture and brilliant winemaking. Um, it's not an accident. It's a lot of hard work. So the arts and the working in a kitchen are very similar in that you put in all this effort beforehand and preparation and planning and sourcing and, and then you execute it and it doesn't matter how great your edifice is, what a beautiful splendid palace you have to serve the food in. If you don't execute it, you do, you do a disservice to those materials and those farmers and the people that pick the olives yes. and the people that, that gather the eggs out of the pasture. So you ultimately want to be prepared to execute things in a, in a great way. So I just had the chance to talk to your neighbor across the street, uh, Mitchell, uh, Beer, Beer Barons. Barons. Yeah. And, uh, it, he had the pleasure of working with you yep. and he described his first, uh, influence of you, his first experience of you, of just the appreciation you have for the food and the craft, and it's coming out right now. And it's funny because that's what he said. It was the first impression I had of this man was his appreciation for the craft and just the, the level of attention. And I'm, I'm getting that right now, so I'm excited to, that we're capturing this uh, after speaking to him across the street. Well, first. part of the program, wherever I am, is I try to inculcate the staff with that appreciation, and I encourage them and even test them on on regular basis on what exactly goes into making the things that we handle and that we prepare and that we serve to people. Because I think it's really important that you know these things. Um, it's one thing to talk about organic food and being sustainable and caring about the planet. But if you don't fucking know where it comes from or what these people's days are like or what goes into say launching a, a label of cheese and the sort of hurdles that the average farmer has to go through, then you really need to stop doing what you're doing, yeah. you know, because it is an unbelievable hurdle that they go through every single day. And you have to appreciate that. I'm not saying you have to go out there and, 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 and take care of the sick animals I want. To, I just made a note to come back to this because I absolutely want to go deeper on this topic. I think yeah. it's worth going into. But let's get chronological and go to the point where it all started for you. Uh, you get out of ballet. You're not no longer dancing. Was it ballet? Was that the, the it type was of ballet? Dance? It was classical ballet. So uh, you get out. You you decide to, to focus on other things in your life. Uh, why food? How did you find yourself in kitchens? Well, I stopped dancing when my partner passed away. Oh man! And when that ballerina left this plane, she. Um, we had lived a, a pretty idyllic life in terms of an appreciation of these things. She had spent a, she had also gone through the School of American Ballet and uh, the Balanchine system and then danced in Europe and then we met in the States. And she really fired me up um, for French cuisine, especially because she had lived in uh, Zurich and Geneva. Um, but her upbringing had been the typical sort of like New York brat had been a child model and all of this. I grew up down in Savannah, Georgia with a mother <laughs> who'd been raised in New Orleans and a father who was Lebanese. So 
food was everything to us. And the men were great cooks and the women were even better cooks. So you didn't get a bad meal, no matter whose household you went to. And, you know, of course, being from the South, everybody barbecues, everybody has outdoor parties. Growing up on a little island off the coast of Savannah, we had oyster roasts. We'd go out in a boat and catch our own shrimp. Um, so it was really from a very early age. I watched my grandmother grinding lamb to make kibbenaye and little kefta balls. And my aunts were fabulous cooks as well. And my mother was even better than my so aunts. It sounds like it's always just been a part of your culture growing it up. It is. And it's kind of cliche because you hear people say like, oh, I watched my grandmother like ratatouille, you know. And it's like. Yes, but you could, my grandfather put olive oil in his hair, you know, so when you <laughs> hugged your grandfather, you smelled horrible cigars and really beautiful olive oil, you know, so it 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 really does imprint you like a baby duck, yeah. and you look for those flavors later on in your life. You don't really understand it, but you come back to it, you know, you go through the, the gnarly phase of your adolescence where you don't care about any of that stuff because you're dealing with hormones, yeah. you know. So food has always been a, a culture of, or a part of your culture, a part of your life. Uh, but when did you start getting intentional about pursuing hospitality and food and beverage as a career? So, um, you know, when I, when I stopped dancing, you know, I decided I'd work for the arts a couple more years. And I did. I worked for the NEA and New York State Council of the Arts. And being in the New York region, you know, you get to eat at a lot of fabulous places. You know, you didn't have any money, but you would get invited to fabulous parties and receptions. And I'd been exposed when I danced to that sort of thing through galas yeah. and, and celebration parties. Um, I can imagine you're, you're uh, traveling certain circles of friends that... Absolutely. Worked, yeah. But, you know, the celebrity chef circuit wasn't really around then. You know, there were fabulous chefs back there, Freddie Girard and... Uh, um, <clears throat> the Paul Bocuse, of course, and um, Jean-Louis Paladin. And, and so, but I wasn't really plugged into that system. But my mother, um, God bless her, would send me, you know, these uh, Best Chefs of San Francisco series, Best Chef of New Orleans. And so these old school French trained culinary geniuses uh, were sort of being politely pushed in yeah. front of me. Um, not so much so that I would adopt this as a way of life, but just for knowledge's sake, because I'm, I'm, I've always been a, sort of an autodidact, and I like to teach myself things and, yeah. and try new things. Is that the direction she wanted you to go in? Or was she pushing no, for you? You know, my mom was great in that she didn't really care what I did as long as I was happy. That yeah. was literally her, her response. So she must have seen this happiness in you. She must have seen the, the gravitation towards food at an early age, and she was just sharing this with you because she knew you. Sure. Liked. I mean, but you can almost say that about anybody in yeah. my family, you know, because <laughs> we love food. Okay. Food was comforting. It was social. Um, and we had great materials to work with down there. But um, it wasn't until I danced that I actually – sort of saw that New York restaurant scene and became drawn to it. So even as a student, as a 16-year-old student, we would go to Windows on the World, and uh, you'd have no money, so you'd take your scholarship stipend, <laughs> and at the door you would have to pay to rent a jacket and a tie to go into Windows oh, on man. the World. And so I'd take a girl, and we'd go there, and um, I get a, a tie, and then we could get one glass of wine. And they, you know, they had like 8,000 bottles of wine yeah. on their list, you know? So you get a bone or something really untouchable, you know, it was $300 bottle back then. Yeah. In 1980, wow. you know? Um, 
but you'd have that fantastic glass of wine and you were in this fantastic, that was such an incredible restaurant. And, uh, it, it affects you, it impacts you and, and leaves a, an impression with you. So I, my curiosity was definitely up, even though I was just starting my dancing career, I felt very drawn to this world because a lot of the same things applied. You had this sort of ex- exquisite suffering and artistry that yeah. went behind all of the preparation and the dishes. Now, the emotion in a kitchen dwarfs anything that I saw in a kitchen because while there's screamers and a lot of emotion in, in kitchens, the best kitchens, you don't see any of that. Mm. They're very cool customers. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's competency, you know. I think, uh, you know, if you're in, uh, you know, if you're in a ballet company and somebody's throwing tantrums all the time, you know, nothing really gets done and the dancers split. Because your emotions like, take over too. You can't focus when people are at that level. Uh, it floods your brain. It, it does, and it, and it clouds things, mm. and it makes things. It, it, honestly, you know, I, I I was so lucky in not even choosing my mentors, but having certain mentors come across my screen that were very cool customers and very confident. So I'm always repeating to my staff, you have to be confident. You get confident from knowledge. Mm. And then that knowledge translates into experience. And that experience is sort of like a stone that you sharpen your knife on all the time Mm. so that it's well honed and very sharp. So you don't ever stop learning. I mean, this new venture we're in now, Quality Pie, is an opportunity for me to learn another phase of this career. So... I was lucky that um, through school, after dancing, you know, I went to I went to University of Massachusetts in, in Amherst and Amherst College and Smith, and for a year, and then I transferred down here to Virginia to go to the architecture program. And in each place, I was just drawn to a certain type of professor and mentor that was really willing to give of themselves. And and that at the college level, you probably remember. Uh, the first thing you learn is that they really don't give a fuck if you show up for class. You <laughs> yeah. know, they're just going to get paid, and, yeah. and that's it. And it's not a knock on them. It's because they see so many uninspired people come through there who are just there so that they're not at home anymore, you know. But I had I had a different approach to it, which was to challenge myself because I'd been told many times, like, ah, you really shouldn't do that. You'll be disappointed, and, you know, you should settle for less. So... You know, it's a classic, like, blue-collar guy being told, like, you don't belong here, you know, this isn't your country club crowd, you should settle for less. And I've never been willing to do that, because why should I? Yeah, absolutely. No, My ideas are just as good as anybody else's ideas, so you have to, again, you have to be able to, you have to be willing to execute and sacrifice to make that happen. And so far, I've felt unstoppable because I'm willing to sacrifice things, you know, Mm. and especially if you're single. If you're a single guy without a family in a kitchen... That's golden, you know, because a lot of my staff here and at other restaurants were starting families. And that really puts kind of a ding in your approach because you you suddenly aren't able to focus 1000 percent because your kids and you haven't been able to sleep mm. for three nights because the kids up. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. That's the correct priority. Um, but once I uh, was in school, you know, you're. If you're not a wealthy kid, you have to work other places. So in Charlottesville, I it was crazy. I, I met up with a guy who was uh, out of the CIA, uh, Valentino Bowling. Um, he was the first African-American chef I'd worked with and, you know, classically French trained. So, you know, I got my five sauces down right away because his interview was like, make me a bechamel. 
make me an Espanol, make me a Chiron, uh, let's make some demi-gloss, you know, and I was just like, my, I was like, what, you know? So that made me read and made me push myself and challenge myself. So was this the first professional job in a kitchen or were you working in restaurants uh, along the way in college? <laughs> no, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had done some hospitality work up in Amherst in Northampton, um, but it wasn't in the production. It was just like a little bit of prep and you would see some very professional chefs, but they were like the, the corporate chef, yeah. you know, the guy that works for a hotel and runs a huge brigade and a brunch and stuff like that. And he really never cooks anymore. This was a guy who actually had his hands in the sauces. So when he asked you to make these sauces, were you, were, did you, were you able to do it? No, of course <laughs> not. I had no clue. You know, I didn't know how to brulee an onion. You know, I didn't know any of these things. And, but I was familiar with the materials. I knew what allspice was. I knew yeah. what a bay leaf was, yeah. you know. So I wasn't completely retarded. You yeah, know? yeah, I got you. And so eventually... Um, uh, after him, you know, I was able to go to Portland, Oregon and work with an amazing guy named Bill Sachek, who had a place that was also very iconic in Portland called Besaw's Cafe. And uh, this was an old, I almost want to call it a lumberjack bar, you know, it was sort of a neighborhood place in northwest Portland before northwest Portland was full of like hipster douchebags. And, um, and that's, that's kind of unfair because I think it's always been sort of a... Um, kind of an arty lefty uh neighborhood but um what was cool about it was we we were right down the street from dark horse comics i was like are you kidding me todd mcfarland's in the neighborhood <laughs> it's so fucking awesome i'm not even sure what that reference is to be completely he, he wrote spawn you know oh, okay okay and, or drew spawn gotcha. and so he's a genius you okay. know and um Clear Creek Distillery were there. So I'm always drawn to these sort of kid apart situations where there are these disparate parts but you can synthesize and imagine them coming together in one thing. And so Bill was doing that. He was taking his Italian background and he was from Chicago and he was using the Northwest materials to make this trattoria experience in just a neighborhood joint. Oh, uh, that's cool. And it was a handwritten menu and the neighbors would pile in there and you'd sell out all night long. And the, at the end of the night, the, the menu would be crossed out. So I didn't go there intentionally looking for work with him. I went there as a political organizer and canvasser. Feel free to move that microphone around, too, if you want to get more comfortable. And I'm good. I'm okay. good. I, I feel like Mel Brooks on high anxiety. Um, <laughs> and uh, the funny thing was I was across the street drinking from the restaurant, and uh, my girlfriend was from Portland, was struggling to find a job, uh, and I'm sitting at the bar just getting drunk in this chef is next to me and he's complaining to the bartender about um not having line cooks and my ears per perked up and he looked at me and he goes you're not a line cook are you and i'm like that depends <laughs> this is bill that, that's this saying is bill Sachek. Yeah. and so he immediately signals to the bartender and he pours two whiskeys <laughs> for us and i realize i'm like okay oh, he's playing me now yeah, yep. so uh he's like look here's the deal you can sit here and drink all night long it's on me don't worry about it but if you show up tomorrow, I will give you a job and you will work for me immediately <laughs> in my kitchen and I'll train you. And I'm like, but you don't even know me. I could be a serial killer. He's like, serial killers are welcome. As long as you show up <laughs> for work and you're clean. Times must have been rough. Uh, well, that was the old days when uh, uh, 
when the uh, dishwashers were the most menacing figure in the restaurant, yeah. you know, and they would have like a Barbie doll collection over the station <laughs> oh that you couldn't touch. Oh my man. Wow. I don't even want to get into that. So real quick, um, let's get Ariel because I want to make sure we leave time, uh, to, to cover, uh, your, your vision for Mas Tapas and uh, uh, how you evolved, how you transformed as a professional with your first restaurant that you owned and uh, also what your vision is for Quality Pies and how uh, you're going to be doing this differently after everything that you've gathered in your experience. Uh, so we, we mentioned your first chef uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, Bill was a mentor. Any other mentors we can get out now, get on the radar that you want to mention before moving on to uh, opening your first restaurant? Well, you know, I draw heavily on, on, on my dancing even 30 years later because they really, uh, Boyan Spasov and Karina Brock and uh, Frank Oman and all of these people that were either associated with New York City Ballet or American Ballet Theater, Melissa Hayden, even Jacques Dembois, you know, Edward Valella. Um, those kind of lessons that they teach you translate into the kitchen because it's about personal sacrifice and 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 commitment and that easily works into what you do in a kitchen because you have to be uncompromising and yet flexible um, because conditions change it's very fluid environment yeah but it also teaches you how to interact with other people and and how to say get the most out of each and every one of you including yourself um but in the kitchen, I worked with Rafael Costa in, in Portland, but it was only for six months. But I learned so much from him because he really, really had such an incredible approach to materials. <clears throat> now, he wasn't breaking any new ground necessarily, you know. I mean, it was just straightforward trattoria cuisine. But, you know, Portland or Providence has probably the biggest best italian food community in providence America, in rhode island okay so you after so you were in portland uh then you came back to the east coast and i you came back to the east coast while my girlfriend finished at brown okay and and so i suffered for a year around all the brown students who were the most insufferable people on earth <laughs> and uh yeah when they're depressed they go to like paris and go shopping you know <laughs> i'm like oh you don't just get drunk uh, on cheap beer you know and they're like no no i go buy jewels in paris oh my gosh so um working with Raphael, even for a short period of time was really fantastic you know and i also was able to cop a job for probably three months at the bread and circus up there which was a precursor to whole foods and it was a new england semi-chain you know there's probably six of them but they had this incredible approach to quality that you know whole foods i guess is forgotten about but uh i worked with the seafood buyers there and so i got to see everything coming out of gloucester before gloucester was shut down because they had overfished um all the cod and hake and lobster and stuff like that but the seafood uh, buyers and the and the and the and the and the fishmongers were incredible to be around. So I'm always drawn to vendors, especially fishermen, um, because of their sort of no nonsense approach uh, to how they harvest and and how they care about sustainability like nobody else does because they see the tangible results every time they go out there's yeah. fewer and fewer like and that, fewer fish that low road that that low road mind is collecting this data and, and tracking the, the information totally and knowing totally this good um 
And and so you know even Rafael Costa was aware of that, and and he brought a, a really beautiful sort of Italian uh, lyricism to the food, you know. So you would have these just very elegant combinations of like grilled swordfish with mascarpone and house-made fennel sausage, you know. And you're like, wow, and and then just just beautiful demi gloss over it. Now, don't get me wrong, he was a son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, you would have to clean a, uh, a copper hood every night standing on top of a wood grill that had been 800 degrees like an oh hour God. ago. So you'd have to put down sheet pans and your clogs would be sticking and melting to it. But I worked there with a couple guys from uh, the um, Johnson & Wales, which was in town. And, uh, I, you know, he may not have thought that I was learning, but I was learning, you know, and just from... You learn just from what is selected and what is determined to be useful and what is being used. That teaches you something just by processes of elimination. Really get specific. What was the big lesson you learned from Chef Raphael? Was it Raphael? Raphael yeah. Costa. Well, it was more like an affirmation that fresh um, uh, um, and, and, and wholesome food speaks for itself he used to say constantly let the material speak for itself let the ingredients speak for themselves we don't need to smother things and he was classically trained in a french mm-hmm. uh academy let the ingredients speak for themselves and he's like my grandmother would tell you that i'm telling you that yeah. that's how you cook the material speaks for itself you all you need to do and michelin he would also quote michelangelo is just reveal what's inside of the mm. marble yeah you don't have to recreate marble just unlock what's inside of the marble. Yeah. And I feel like I cut you off earlier when you were talking about Bill. Uh, you were going to get into like what, what you learned from him. I, I might have cut you a little short. Did I? Because I Bill, don't like, Well, I don't... you know, Bill was uh, – <clears throat> Bill felt the same way about materials because he got the most beautiful materials there. We get fresh porcini and wild salmon and all these other things. But he was really – keen on the business side he really knew business wise how to handle customers and how to treat them so there would be times where you're breaking down your station you've had an exhausting night i mean being a trattoria you were sauteing till your arms were sunburned from the flash of the pans i shit you not like you would literally be burned and tanned on your arms from so much saute work where the oil ignited and um but there would be two customers from the neighborhood, regulars, that would come in half hour after you were really closed, and he would come over to you and go, I'm going to set you up with a tab across the street at the Billy Goat Tavern, and I want you to cook them dinner, and uh, afterwards I'll give you 50 bucks. And it just impressed me how absolutely savvy he was about human relations and yeah. interactions and hospitality because – he would remind us, we're in the hospitality trade, yeah. okay? You can't hate people if you're in the hospitality trade. So people that worked with him were the most dedicated soldiers. We'd have only a brunch crew. They didn't do anything else but cook brunch, and they were surfers the rest of the time. So they, <laughs> they'd cut, roll back in the town with their quiver on their truck, and it'd be gigantic shark bites in the tails Jesus, of all their boards. That, <laughs> and, but these guys would rock out a... 300 cover brunch like it wasn't no big thing they'd be sitting there talking to each other and telling jokes and you're like jesus christ my adrenaline's like coming out of my ears right now i can't even imagine that but i want to go deeper in this idea of he just you said that he had this like level of just commitment and loyalty to him so what was it how did he get that level of commitment how did he get that level of loyalty you know he was this big teddy bear of a guy you know so um i wasn't big like i am now 
And so he was sort of almost a father figure. Raphael was not a father figure unless you're into like Mussolini, you know. <laughs> um, he, uh, Bill was very warm and engaging. And more importantly, he would yell at his wife, who was very mean to everybody. So that made him <laughs> our hero you. immediately. He would defend us. And that was my first experience working for a chef who would defend his employees. What did that mean to you? How did that impact you? Well, it meant a lot because it meant that he cared about you, first of all, which you don't go into a situation saying like, oh, I want to make sure you care about me. You know, you'll never get a job if you those words come out of your mouth. Yeah. But he actually backed up what he said. And so he was asking you to make this commitment and he would make the commitment to you. So that's been my line to almost every staff I've had. I'm like, I'm going to make a commitment to you, but you have to make a commitment to me as well. So, um, Bill sort of showed me that that kind of, um, resolute confidence and honesty and sincerity. And nowadays I really appreciate it. Authenticity really meant something, you know, and his recipes were just his family recipes. They weren't out of a, you know, sexy trade book or anything like that. He didn't go to conferences or anything like that or trade shows. He didn't have any time for that. His body was breaking down. So I saw this sort of aging warrior, kind of an Achilles kind of guy, you know, who would go to the, he'd go to the end for you. And I loved, I loved that feeling that this guy really did have your back. Now, this restaurant, people love this restaurant, you know, and that was also inspiring to work. You would tell people in Portland, like, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I work at B-Sauce. And they're like, B-Sauce? Oh yeah. God, that's so the most amazing meal there. So that's a level, I think that taps into the, the, the you know, the Mazas hierarchy of needs of belonging to something that you that's can right. be proud of. Uh, right there. It's important. Yeah. You want to, we all want to belong to something that you want to be relevant. Absolutely. You don't want this to all just go for nothing. Yeah. And then earlier, the very first thing you mentioned when telling the story of Bill, he said that once he realized that you were a line cook, he gave before he asked. I think it's it's little subtle things. Like he gave you two shots of whiskey before even mentioning anything to you to get that. So now he's, now you owe him a favor off the, you know, well, (laughs) well, first of all, I was hoping that he wasn't coming on to me sexually. I was like, I'm not really, Subtle things when you're. I've heard about these Portland Bears. I don't know about this guy, but bartenders were cool guys, and uh, you know what I'm saying. Though, yeah, like he totally. knew to like give you a freebie before asking. So if you've ever been to Moss, you know that I I learned that from Bill. The reciprocity is set by the establishment. So the first thing you get when you come to Moss is a bowl of olives. Yeah, and that is symbolic That's, to some people. They don't even eat them. So you I know? was there uh, last week uh, with. Um, Jenny uh, Peterson. Yes. From uh, Paradox Pastry. Right. And I, I, she was there before I was. I walked up. I was like, did you order olives? Because I fucking love olives. But you, you instantly, it's like you got something as soon as you're there. And it's a little gesture, but it's just a little like subtle, like, I'm going to give this to you before you even ask for it. Just to be, you know, just to get the momentum going in the right direction. And, and that's not just olives that we take out of a bucket and give it to They're you. Delicious. I, I curate those olives. And I hate using that word, but I hand select the olives because it's a teaching moment for me with the staff. You know, I can take that bowl of six different olives and write a novel for them mm. about the olives, where they come from, where they're referenced in Hemingway, um, who the people are that grow the olives. And it gives me an opportunity, once again, to go back to the beginning of this prawn materials that we use and why it's important and why, like, this little teeny olive called the Arbequina is what gives us all the olive oil we mm-hmm. use in the restaurant. 
Well, also too, what's the significance of having the story behind the product? How does that play into the experience? It's kind of a it's kind of a new thing in America, but in Europe they've been doing it for a long time. Um, they they feature and show you who produces your food out of both food security issues, which Americans are more attuned to, um, but also so that you have a certain amount of confidence and security about what you're doing. Like I went to a bistro in Paris and they had pictures of the cow and the farmer and the names of the cows. And if you ever buy uh, A5 Satsuma Wagyu, which I do from Japan, they'll have a nose print of the calf. What? It's mother, father, and farmer all written down on there. So you have this lineage and it's you're important. to it. Well, you're connected to it, but it's about a narrative mm. and it's about telling a story. So you asked about the connection between dancing and cooking. They both tell stories. Sometimes the story is abstract. If it's Balanchine, it doesn't really have a prince and a princess all the time. If it's, dan- if, if it's food, it doesn't always start with a appetizer and end with a dessert. Sometimes it's nowhere in between, you know, it's whatever the chef is feeling that day. So the people I've been drawn to in the kitchens I've worked in all have narratives. And the narratives are very important because we're talking about human beings and human beings have stories. And I want to tell those stories. I don't want it to be a corporate uh, double speak gobbledygook about, you know, green mailing all this stuff and capturing these key phrases and using them as a marketing technique. I want it to be honest. I want it to be authentic. Yeah. I, w- I want you to smell the poop, you know. <laughs> I want you to see the leaves in their hair, and I want you to understand that you know every 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 uh, tom of goat cheese that you eat came out of these beautiful little animals that this woman, like Gail Hobbs, took care of. Past like guests her, on the show, by like the way. her own children, and and love them, and and brings in outside people to help her. Um, hug and adore these children when they're born. I mean, it's it's an incredible story, Caramont Farms. And so for me, it became very important to tell the narrative and to get my staff um, into the flow of understanding that narrative as a way of matriculating with customers who come into the restaurant. Uh, I would tell them, I'm like, listen, I don't want you making things up. But I do want you to feel free to share this knowledge with people as a way of bridging that gap. You're the interlocutor for the kitchen. You're the front end of the kitchen. Don't think of yourself as just a server. You're actually part of the kitchen. You're an arm of the kitchen. Yeah. And so I want you to be able to tell them where the hams come from, how they're made, how they're grown, what they eat. Yep. And that opens up the opportunity for people to ask you questions about well, who makes this? So how do you stay on top of this never ending education of the staff? Like how do you, how do, do you, you stay do, on top of it by staying on top of so it? Do you build systems in your day? Do you build, uh, you, you know, how, how do you make sure you make the time to never stop educating? I think people want to, they intend to, but they just stop doing it. They, they, they let it get away yeah. from them. So how do you make sure you do it every day? Well, you know, People have to buy into it, and it's kind of cliche, like, you know, oh, you want to make them feel like they're owners. You know, for me, I, I thought they were excited about just the experience of tasting and eating this food. They didn't really understand the relevance or importance of how special this food was at first. But once they start tasting and eating it, they notice how different it is mm. and how clean it is. 
and then they taste other foods mm-hmm. and then they really get it. Um, and so I would design a series of tests and I would try and make them fun uh, that covered a wide range of things, including geography and sort of language and cultural things, because that's important in the food production, uh, especially as it pertained to Spain, because um, there's a lot of traditional food there, but it's also a very heavy melting pot and fusion. But I wanted them, I never wanted them to get away from that because I wanted them to understand that these are about choices, choices made by the farmers, choices made by the negociants for the wine, choices made by the restaurants that buy the wine and buy the jamón and pick the cheeses and choices made locally here about how many chickens do we add to our flock, you know, so that we can keep up with the demand and do we keep it organic or do we just go to conventional feed? And and I just want to keep them in touch with the sacrifices that other people make for their art, for their profession, for their careers, so that they feel confident describing that to people. But also maybe it will change their lives. Mm. Maybe they will make those kind of choices somewhere down the line. And, you know, we begin every interview with employees by saying, like, we're looking for good people. You don't have to know everything. That can be learned and taught. But we want you to be a good person, not just that you know right and wrong, but that you have an insatiable um, intellectual curiosity for finding out things Mm. and being a thinking problem solver. And even at the small level that this pie and coffee shop are going to offer, yesterday we were serving charred octopus banh mi's. That was a new one for all my staff. They're like, where's the blueberry pie? Yeah, And I'm like, the blueberry pie is after. (laughs) Serve the octopus first. The cool thing about the space is I would never, walking in here, I would never expect to to see something like that on the menu just because of the the feel you get uh, just from the decor and the the old-fashioned feel from this space. Um, Well, expect the unexpected. I was going to say, but just that idea of like you're expecting one thing and you're going to get something totally different, which is going to make this a very unique experience. So I'm, I'm really lucky here. When I started Moss, I did not have a, a cooking staff that was as in-depth as the one I have here. I've got two guys, Johnny Frankenberger and Kevin Schroeder, who have combined probably 50 years wow. of experience in very good kitchens. Um, but more importantly, these guys are soldiers. Yeah. These are the guys that Achilles had on either side of him when he went in and just slaughtered people. You know what I mean? They are un- unforgiving as far as so, their commitment goes. In a market like this, where if – I mean, I ask everybody I speak to, what is your biggest challenge today? It's finding good people. It how, is. How did you manage to get between two people 50 years of experience in a market that's just uh, totally consumed – and oversaturated with restaurants. Well, my production crew, which these guys are part of, I didn't have to ask them. I didn't have to recruit them. When I started this project, I had a chef in mind, a young man named Barry Benny that I have to mention, and tragically passed away oh, last man. year at age 35. And so yeah. I had to pump the brakes and figure out if I wanted to go forward with this because this was a lot and Moss was a lot. So these guys were like, we're with you a thousand percent, whatever you want to do. And Kevin, I'd worked with many, many years ago when we were both college students. So he, um, he knew me and he was comfortable with me. And that's important, um, because you don't want to step on each other's egos, uh, at all. And you try to be egoless. And then Ana Maria Hernandez, mi corazón is, she is the most unselfish, hardworking kitchen worker I've ever worked with. 
and it doesn't matter what happens. Like yesterday morning, I dropped a 25 liter bottle of water and broke it on the floor and flooded the whole fucking kitchen. <laughs> and she didn't look at me and say, you fat asshole, what have you done? She started pulling mats up and draw the, brought the ma- mop out and started mopping things. And yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that you're getting specific, but really go into uh, the heart. You said she's the hardest kitchen worker ever. Really paint that picture of what a hard kitchen worker does. Hard kitchen worker is somebody that doesn't even take a break. She doesn't smoke cigarettes. Um, she's not on her cell phone all the time. She's got her head down and she's asking you what's next, mm. you know, and, and that's what you want. You want somebody with that sort of uncompromising focus um, and not to the point where I'm like taking advantage of her, you know, she is just a joy to work with. She's always very positive, no matter what's going on in her life. She's a single mother. She's got incredible challenges raising two kids by herself. And I like to think that in both places, Moss and here, I've been very good. My mom raised five kids by herself during the Vietnam war when she was an army nurse. So I understand what kind of challenges they face. Um, She's just a quality person, and I'm happy to be able to work with her, and I'm happy to be providing her with my end of the proposition, which is gainful employment in a meaningful situation. And so she has, you know, again, you know, when I decided to leave Moss, she didn't hesitate. She was like, I'm with you. I'll give them notice today. Um it, you just let me know when you're ready for me. And that means a lot to to have people follow you like that because I didn't ask her to do that because I knew that any discontinuity in her income stream was meaningful, you know, and, and, and would hurt her. You know, she doesn't make that much. She might make $35,000 a year, you know, and you take $3,000 out of that and that it's hurts. A big difference. That's a big percent. It's a, it's a yeah. big percent. So. Um, I love having her here. She adds a lot. She she brings a lot of uh, good ideas from her native state of Oaxaca. And um, we love incorporating that ethnicity into the food here because Oaxaca is another place that is all about the ingredients. I don't even know where Oaxaca is. Where is it? Oaxaca in Mexico is uh, is a region that spans uh, from the Pacific inland into the mountains and okay. is renowned for its its cuisine. Uh whether you're eating flying ants or you're eating a <laughs> hundred different kinds of chili peppers, right. it's uh, very dominated by Indian and native culture and uh, it's a very colorful place. And um, she is, uh, she's not the most adventurous eater, but she's willing to try just about anything, but she can painstakingly reproduce her grandmother's mole. And oh. that's all that matters. You know, <laughs> yeah. she wants to be true to her roots and her tradition in the same way that I am with my, uh, with my family's Lebanese food and the Mediterranean food of Spain and, and food from, uh, from the Basque region. So, um, you need all kinds of people in the kitchen, you know, uh, you need people like that. And then you also need dreamers, you know, who are always thinking about different things. That's what Kevin Schroeder is. He's a, he's a dreamer and he comes up with crazy ideas that we never will do. But he's at least poking that envelope and trying to burst out. And, and Johnny is the ultimate, like, what's next guy, you know? Yeah. And so you need those kind of people, especially in, you know, we're staff of four. So that's a small kitchen anywhere, you know? And I, I try to I try to paint the picture for him of some of the places I've been in Europe or in New Orleans or in Georgia where there's two people or one person. Yeah, I, I went to a guy in, in Crete, and uh, you have to almost wake him up, and he'd come out and he go, "Yeah, what do you want?" You know, and I'm like, <laughs> uh, "I don't know. What are you making today?" And he's like, 
I have some tagliatelle. And you're like, cool. Let's have some tagliatelle with what? And he's like, <laughs> I'll put anything you want on there. You know, I put uh, some octopus, some sardines, you know. And so they have a very kind of fresh, um, handmade, some people would call it bespoke attitude about what they do. Don't get me wrong. I want them in a rush too, you know, yeah. where they can just bang stuff out. And so you kind of have to have that balance of people that are willing to bang things out, but they're also willing to like make something really nice. Like Kevin and Johnny, Johnny was making the uh, charred octopus bond me and Kevin was making uh, churros um, yesterday for uh, guests here for our uh, soft opening and uh they did it joyfully you know and and it's never like fuck this and fuck people and you know you hear that so much in the industry because people get very burned out you think these guys after cooking for this many years would be burned out why aren't they because they get to work with the most beautiful materials here and and that is all the difference in the world you get to touch the finest olive oil. You get to handle truffles. You're you're working with fish that's so fresh. You know, just came out of the water the night before. So this has been a great conversation, and I have to admit, it's not very. Uh, it's not. It doesn't take the traditional path that a lot of my conversations do, uh, in the sense that we usually say very chronological and take this go on this journey through your career. But it's been very kind of aerial and philosophical. But I've loved every second of it. Uh, are what? you breaking up with me? Is that no, what you're doing? No, not at all. Um, there's a, one question I want to ask, and then I also want to leave room to talk about some of the business decisions you're making and some, some of the business advice you have. Absolutely, I'll have some more champagne. Uh, thank you. Yeah, because you're getting too serious. <laughs> uh, but one question I, I do have for you, uh, you mentioned it early on in this conversation saying uh, that you, you make a deal with your employees and you say, I'm going to offer you this, but you got to offer me this in return what is it that you offered them in that transaction well you know um as i was talking about bill Sachak, i have total commitment behind them you know i will back them up i'll support them in what they do you know i'll believe them um you know uh something that's endemic to this trade is people that don't show up for work or people that are like oh i've got the flu you know or my grandmother died or something and you're like, how many grandmothers do you have? That's like number six. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of trust that goes with that commitment to them. And then in return, you know, they get not just good working conditions. They get great working conditions. And they get to work with this beautiful food and and know that I'm not compromising their ethics in any way, which I think everybody is very concerned about because you'll, you'll get some Trumpian uh, – corporate guy who will uh, I mean I've worked with people who've taken my food and sold it to somebody else and then gone to Walmart and bought some prepackaged stuff we were doing some uh, film catering and they did that and I was like well I can't kill you because I'm, you're not worth going to prison for but I want to oh, man. you know because you took my name and our reputation which is everything and you shit all over it and the people that work here know that I would never do that to them. I would never compromise their reputation. I'd never ask them to do something bad or serve food that is substandard um, because I wouldn't do that. And I'm not in this. It's a hard grinding work to compromise like yeah. that and roll over and say, like, oh, it doesn't matter. Fuck people, you know. I don't want to do that. I, I want to be good. I want to be ethical. I don't want to have karma. Um 
and I want to respect the farmers and the producers and, and the sacrifice that people like. So when Ana Maria comes in here and both of her kids are sick and they're at home and she's spending money on a babysitter uh, that she can't really afford, you know, I don't want to waste her time. I want her time here to be fruitful and meaningful for her so that when she goes home, she's not all ragged out from working with some jerkwad, you know, yeah. and she feels good about what she's done that day. And so I guess is a long way of saying that work is important to me. It's a, it's a blessing. Uh, um, a former developer here in town, Gabe Silverman, used to repeat that to me. He'd say, work is a blessing, buddy. You know, don't forget that. And I'm like, yeah, but when was the last time you worked, you know? <laughs> um, and and he, he did work. He, he was a hardworking guy all his whole life. But it struck me because I'm like, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be uh, Bobby Flay. I'm not going to be this superstar guy on the Food Network. But I never wanted that. You yeah. Know? To me, I hate that. You know, that just, I want to be respected by the people I work with and peers. And that's more important to me than anything else, especially working with a team like the one we have here. Um, that means more to me than any sort of monetary reward. And that may be naive. And it won't buy me a Mercedes, although I do have an old 300D Mercedes. <laughs> so since 2002, uh, 16 years now since you've been a restaurant owner, uh, or, or were there any things before this I should know about that we, we missed? I actually had a place over the bridge here called um, Market Street Cafe that was okay. a, sort of an experiment that lasted about a year. Um, that was kind of a fun uh, exploration into the gourmet gas station experience, which was a thing here in the 90s. Okay. So you'd come into a gas station and you'd be like, you guys got anything to eat? And people were like, absolutely. We have a charred octopus bond me right now. <laughs> you want that? And they're like, what? <laughs> so um, uh, I had that and um, some catering stuff, uh, which... I didn't really like because even though you had all this freedom, uh, people behave very strangely at weddings. Uh, mostly they ask and do very unreasonable things. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, you know. So let me ask you this. In in the uh, X amount of years, 20, 20 years as an owner, maybe 18 years as an owner, have you transformed? Have you changed who you are today versus who you were then and how have you transformed? What things have you learned? Uh, how are you trying to be a, a better version of yourself today than you were then? Well, I'm trying to lose weight. And so that fits in with my scheme of stripping down and paring down and, and distilling things into their essence. And I think every chef goes through this where you become more simple and you're looking for a more simple approach. Not simplistic, simple, pure, authentic um, and that's what drives me to, say, take trips to Spain or France or Italy and, and experience food at their source. Um, and so if I could say anything, it's that I'm not, you know, I would look back at old menus I'd written and they're so weird and perverse in the things I was trying to do. And now I, I don't even do that. I, like them as, I let the materials speak for themselves. Mm. And that's enough. And people now are starting to come around to that. That's why I have a garden outside of the door behind you. So that I can just send a customer out there um, and say, uh, taste some of that chart out there. Yeah. Or pull a carrot up and uh, I'll rinse it off for you so you can eat it. I want people to remember where everything comes from and how important it is to take care of the Mother Earth. And and why slow food is an important movement. You know, people overlook that as a political movement. But I think that's one of the most powerful political movements. Why? In, well, because of 
its implications. You know, if we were to adopt a less industrial, more slow food approach, we would change things on this planet in such a profound way. Give me some examples. Well, how we use uh, raw materials and how we treat land. Um, You know, we would cut down on air pollution. Uh, We would stop this insane march towards chemicalizing and GMOing everything. And more, I was explaining to somebody today, the more local and organic and slow you get, the more money is captured in that local economy, the better the tax base is for people, the better income farmers and families, and believe me, you can't farm by yourself. You need a family. Uh, the more secure they become, yeah. or less insecure, and that is so important. I've this got, is Thomas <laughs> Jefferson's town. I've got to compound on what you're sharing because uh, a lot of people want to talk about sustainability and why we need to be slow. They, they, they point out a lot of the, uh, uh, I guess the impacts on the uh, ecosystem, the impacts on the economy, the impacts yes, on wallets. That's true. But they don't ever really mention the uh, emotional sustainability yeah. of people needing to belong and having a purpose. Absolutely. And, and we, there's a lack of that today. Everybody just has jobs. Nobody has purpose. And when you, when you source from your community and you provide opportunity because you're sourcing from your community, you're providing purpose. And I think that is the most important part of this whole equation is the emotional sustainability of of knowing that you have a purpose in your community. Listen, the people look up at Monticello and they think about all the slave culture that was there and that was certainly there. And it was, there were definitely perpetuating that evil system um it's our original sin in america whether it was native americans or or african americans we were or later scott irish people in indenture but one of the great things that jefferson did do was he talked about the democratic principles behind being a citizen farmer and there was it wasn't a joke. It was, goes back to Roman times in Cincinnati. You know, he goes to war and then he comes home and he works on his farm because the farm's more important than fighting Gauls, you know. So we have that opportunity in this country and we've sort of lost our way. And slow organic cooking and sustainability is a way of getting back to that connection to the community and that kind of relevance where you're part of several ecosystems not just the literal ecosystem but the economic ecosystem the social social and cultural uh, ecosystem and you make choices for who politically represents you based upon that and then you develop a philosophy that helps guide you through life that you share with your children who come up behind you i, I have two great friends uh, Catherine and uh, uh j taylor emory in warsaw virginia and they inherited what it was one of the biggest slave factories in Virginia, Mount Airy Farm, and they've turned it into this beautiful, I don't want to call it experimental farm, but it's multifaceted, and they have hunting and guides, and they, uh, they, they cultivate soybeans and corn, and, and they have environmental tours there and historic tours that are very honest about the history of this place. And we just have to be more honest about all of these things yeah. and, and slow farming um, and production of organic, sustainable foods, there's no better way to connect to people. You know, it's not about solving world hang- hunger in, in Bangladesh. The way you solve world hunger in Bangladesh is stop selling them shit from GMO yep. outlets like uh, Archer Daniels Midland, you know, and, and giving them the tools 
in Bangladesh to grow their own food because they live in a giant floodplain, you yeah. know? So you have to give them knowledge and then help enable them do that if you're going to help them. Um, otherwise, get the fuck out of the way. They'll figure it out because they've only been there for 15,000 years. Right. You know, we're brand new here. You know, we're still figuring stuff out. It's crazy to think this has uh, already been an hour conversation. I've been yeah. loving every moment of it. Uh, but before we move on to the speed round, is there anything that you were hoping we would talk about? Any last piece of wisdom you can drop on us on this free-flowing portion of the conversation before we move on? Well, I don't want people to, I don't want people to give up hope. Um, I know that's strange for a chef to say, but politically right now, it seems very bleak. And maybe it's not bleak if you're a Nazi lover or you love people that suppress um, other people and stop them from living their lives fruitfully. Um, But last summer, we had a horrible experience where we were literally invaded by Nazi sympathizers and real Nazis, and they traumatized the entire community and I was there and we fought them and gave aid to the people who were being injured, um, innocent people. And, um, what came out of that was an incredible sense of community where people in this little place banded together. Like I've never seen them band together. So that common threat was realized and people took, steps to constructively engage it and almost all of the businesses were restaurants and i was so so fucking proud yeah of all my friends you know stepped up and i have to say uh i'm a huge fan of the city in the, in the past year i have been uh to back to the city this is my third well i guess technically fourth trip back if, if you don't count the the time I left for a couple of days and came back third time back. And that event is in no way a representation of the people, no. the, the, the community, uh, just the warmth of this community. And it's so sad to have such a, a tragic event tied to such a, a, a great community. So I'm happy that you mentioned that. Yeah. And, and we're not without our problems. You know, we still have a lasting legacy from slavery days and the civil war where there's still people that, that trumpet the Confederacy, you know, and, I grew up in Savannah. There are more Confederate memorials there than you can count. And I became very oblivious to it. But up here, it seems to be a lot more tender because this is the home of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And and it really struck a, a, a chord with people. And also this community, because of the university, I think, is very self-conscious about examining its past and, and its history and, and all the structural inequalities and I welcome that. And so I don't want people to disengage. I don't want African-Americans to stop voting. I don't want them to stop engaging in this um, political dialogue that we're in because the political dialogue extends into the food industry and into the restaurant industry because we depend on immigration and immigrants and we depend on sound environmental policy. So very proud of people like Tom Colicchio who has taken a huge stand and so proud of Jose Andres and the Think Food Group and all of the people involved with their efforts in Puerto Rico and California. I mean, it's astonishing what they did when governments could not be moved to do and help and respond. These guys stepped into the breach and they stepped into the breach like pros. You know, they were prepared. 
they had their supply and, and food chains intact and uh, they really helped people and they saved lives. And so I want people to not give up hope. I yeah. want people to keep fighting. You know, I think that I truly believe in my heart of hearts that this industry is that hope. I think that we are a leading edge on a, a time of change, uh, of a time of, of changing values. Uh, and I think that this industry uh, is, is going back to the roots. And we're, we're, we are the in, the, in many senses, we're always the trailing edge and uh, we're slow to adopt new technologies. Right. But I think because the pendulum swinging in the opposite, opposite direction, we are at the leading edge going back the other way because uh, we we're just going back to those roots. We're going back to the values that really matter. And uh, we never, you know, I feel like we haven't strayed as far away as certain other industries. So it's very true. And, and we're not benefiting from the, the disharmony that's happening right now. We're trying to make things better. We're sort of keeping our feet on the ground. And, you know, in all honesty, when you're dealing with working class people, we have to work and we have to pay bills and we have to take care of our family. So we don't have a lot of time for activism. We can't march all the time. But I will tell you, I went to the march with some of my staff from Moss, uh, the Women's March, and that was the greatest moment I think I've ever experienced in my life. It was the most positive sort of uh, confidence and faith-building event that I've ever witnessed. And I've been to a few in D.C., and there was it was just so fantastic and, and inspiring. So first of all, we're human beings and we have to keep going as human beings, but we need other human beings to connect to and we need to connect to them. And so you ask me like, you know, how does all this have to do with all of this? Well, it's all connected, you know, and we have to just remember that it's connected yeah. and we can't forget that we may be comfy and, and, and things may be good for us, but other people are suffering and, I don't expect you to sell your car to support a family in Nicaragua, you know, although that'd be nice. And I've known people here who've actually <laughs> done it. But um, be honest to yourself. Be true to yourself. Do the best job you can do. And that's a start. That's why I talk about craft and trade all the time. I'm like, if you're just an excellent person and you do very well at what you do, that's a start. You know, that may not solve world hunger, but it's also not hurting situation nope. and you're a stronger person and you can help yeah jeff i love this conversation we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors we'll be right back all right i have a question for you how can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant hmm well for starters fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated 40 billion in losses in the u.s in 2017 alone and this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the u.s eeoc in 2017 resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to EthicsSuites.com. 
com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months. So for the cost of 12 months, you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there. And we're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Behave like an Afghan warlord. <laughs> okay. What's your biggest weakness? Fast woman. 24 karat gold and 96 proof liquor. <laughs> What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? You kind of already touched on this earlier. Absolute devotion. Mm. How do you know somebody has absolute devotion? Actions speak louder than words. What actions are you looking for? Quiet, confident, competency. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? My biggest challenge today is bringing what was a 55-year legacy of shortening fried donuts into the new world, peeling the veil back on the quality pie that offers many, many more things. Ibirico, amon, um, artisanal cheeses, and handmade pies. So basically taking a factory industrial food legacy and turning it into something that is handcrafted and slow and local. How do you think the community is going to uh, take that? I'm curious. It's such a change love from it. what it was. I love it. Glad to hear it. Um, <clears throat> share one code of conduct or behavior, a core value you teach your team. Cooperation. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is uh, something that's standard within your four walls, but not standard within the industry. There is no other way but the right way. Mm. There are no shortcuts. And give olives away in the very beginning. Give olives away. <laughs> uh, what is one book that will make us a better person or restaurant operator? Oh, well, there's so many books. You can mention more than one. Um, Eve Insler's written a book on the commons that is dense for people without sociology backgrounds, but it's a very important book. Um, honestly, uh, a friend gave me a copy of The Prophet, and I reread it. He's he's a Lebanese guy, so yeah. I was drawn to that. And then another friend gave me a book that I hate, but I read it anyhow, uh, and it was basically about eradicating yourself and not being an ego and giving up on materiality and being more spiritual and less material driven, which I'm not, but <laughs> so, I do have a Mercedes. So take one of these books uh, and then give a lesson that you, that you pull from one of those books. Be unselfish. Which book are you talking about? All three of them. Okay. Um, find yourself in nature. That's Gibran. Love your friends. Tell them every day that mm. you love them because you don't know when they're leaving. I love it. You want to? You got more? It looks like you're you're searching for more. But I, I mean, don't make I, me I'm, cry I'm, again. <laughs> all right. Uh, share an online resource or tool. Oh, there are a lot of tools online that you you can't count them all. There's so many of them. Um, I would say, um, for me, um, I really enjoy podcasts okay and preet babarara is a is a local favorite or a recent favorite um dahlia lithwick is also 
a favorite, although with the recent Supreme Court news, it's going to be too depressing to listen oh, to. Oh, man. Um, but, yeah, podcast, because they sort of put my mind in a different place, and I'm able to shut off all the crazy voices. I'm, I'll be honest, I have not heard of those two podcasts. So what do they what do they get after? What is it about? Dahlia Lithwick's just about SCOTUS. Okay. That's all she talks about. And I think she still lives here part-time. Okay. She's brilliant, and she reports on what they do. And Preet Bharara was a former uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Donald Trump fired him oh. because he was hot on his trail. <laughs> um, but I also listen to fun ones like Tannis and Rabbits and... Um, you know, this American life. Okay. I'm, I'm very narrative driven. So I love narratives and I love stories and especially love hearing people's personal stories. Yeah. So the moth is a good one yep. as well. Yep. And it will make you cry. I got plenty of things to link to. That's for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, sh- share one technology you're going to be adopting in your restaurant that you're excited about one, maybe change you made or some, something that that's new to you that you think is going to have a big impact on your operation. Well, we got a, we got a, a real sheeter and a diving arm mixer. And for 15 years, 16 years, we mixed heavy, wet sourdoughs by hand and <laughs> 140 pounds a day. And uh, to have a machine do that for you in 20 minutes is fantastic because you want it, the dough to retard as long as possible yep. and develop complexity. So uh, having a diving arm mixer and a sheeter are pretty wonderful. So why is it worth investing in this technology? Um, well, they're beautiful machines, and um, so they're elegant in their own right. Um, but it helps us continue uh, to do what we're trying to do, which is provide high-quality prime materials in the best light possible. Mm-hmm. You know, So in other words, letting the material speak for itself. So I'm also curious, uh, what about front of house? Is there anything uh, technology – focused technology geared that might be different and, and why did you make that decision with the second time around you know honestly it's a very simple thing we switched to a square pos versus a big hard drive pos and it's it's more mobile friendly and so my staff it takes a big burden off of them instead of working on this clunky touch screen that is anchored to the counter mm-hmm. they these things can move around because cool. it's a pad you know or it's their cell phone so I like that, and they wear very sassy aprons as well here, which wasn't allowed at the other place. Awesome. All right, this is the last question. It's a big one. Are you ready for it? I don't know. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would they be? Only three things. I know this has been said before, but... Eat as many sandwiches as you can. Never turn down a sandwich. They're wonderful. Okay, that's one. Hot dogs are the universal sign of happiness. So okay. if you're going intergalactic, just remember that. You'll okay. find a hot dog somewhere down the line. And be kind to everybody. I love it. Awesome stuff, Chef. This has been a great conversation. It really has. A very philosophical uh, in nature. Uh, let's call somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator? Somebody you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today. Maybe somebody within uh, the uh, Richmond or Seville area. And I've, I've done a pretty good oh, job. Oh, well, have you, I've, have you talked to Ed at Mama Zoo's? I have not. Or Joe Sparato? I have not. How about Evram at Sub Rosa? He's my favorite. I have not. <laughs> he, he, he bakes croissant in a brick oven. That makes him a, a god to me because that is the, 
easily one of the most difficult things to do, and he he carries it off brilliantly. So I would say those three guys in Richmond are are incredible. Drop those names on me one more time. So Everham uh, from Subarosa Bakery, Joe Sparata from Heritage, and um, uh, Ed Vizio from Mama Zoo's and Eight and a Half. And, um, Everin, Joe, and Ed. Look yeah. out, guys. I'm coming after you. Yeah, they're all ethnic guys, so uh, you, you'll dig them. And, and you know, I got to say, each of their places I went to surprised me. And that's hard. You, you get jaded after a while, and so it's hard to surprise somebody that's been to a few places and eaten at, at hallowed spots. And these are all iconic, wonderful beautifully elaborated uh, 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 venues where you will just get delicious, nutritional, um, beautiful food. Beautiful. So uh, let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team or we want to follow what you do or maybe ask you a follow-up question on some of the uh, mentorship you share with us today? Well, I would also add the shack in Stanton with Ian Bowden. I've had him. Yeah. He was great. He's a genius. Yeah. I've heard... Um, I mean, literally, I don't throw that word around lightly. Um, to get in touch with us, we've got a, um, a website that's going up currently, and uh, we have a Facebook page, and we're going to be Instagramming. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, hit the Quality Pie page and uh, leave your Vitae on that. and um, Or you can just drop by. I always think people should stop by and, and, and look at a place and check it out. I'm... I'm I'm a little disappointed when people come to me and they haven't eaten or haven't uh, spent some time there and they just show up just because you're on the list. You know? <laughs> that doesn't help at all. You know, It needs to be more purpose-driven when you come here because you want to make an impression not with your clothing but with your intent yes. that you're a serious person and you're not here just because I'm – you want to check me off. Yes. Chef Tomas Rahal, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share your story, to share your mentorship, to share your values with us. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers. Chef Tomas, wow, man. Dancer, chef, and you could probably be a storyteller slash poet, man. You know how to talk. You know how to lay it out there. Great stuff today. I was engaged the entire time. That's for sure. And I'm sure my listeners were too. I think the big takeaways for me in today's conversation, I love the detail he went into talking about one of the mentors he had, uh, Bob, his last name's escaping me as I'm recording this, uh, but out in Seattle, uh, that idea of just uh, defending your people, going to bat for your people, even if you're just defending them from your wife, you know, your people, when they know that you have their backs, that you'll go to to bat for them, that you will defend them, they will re- in return have your back. Awesome stuff. And plus that, that emphasis with him and that emphasis on uh, just hospitality. Great stuff there. I also love the conversation around educating your people on the story behind the food you're serving, uh, the connection that food has with other people and why it's so important to treat this food with, with such respect and to really, you know, cherish it. And it's not just a transaction. It's 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 the livelihood. This, this food is someone's livelihood and you should treat it like that. Lastly, I love this idea of, of just hope, you know, uh, be a person of your craft, do the right thing, cherish the process and be hopeful. And uh, if you can do that, good things will happen. Uh, but you got to have that hope. 
All right, guys, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can make this resource better. I'm here to go to work for you, but you got to tell me how I can best serve you. If you heard that car honk, yes, it's because I'm recording this in a parking lot in my car or whatever it takes to get these stories to you on time is what I'm going to do. Uh, also, on that note, I'm in Richmond now, and I'm leaving Richmond uh to head as as you're listening to this i'll be on the road headed towards new orleans i would love to or new orleans i guess is how you say it i would love to get some interviews down there uh and then on to texas if you're in san antonio or austin and you got a place for me to crash let me know all i need is a place to park my car or pitch a tent that's all it takes to get me out there uh, some great stuff out there out there in those cities so i want to capture it all if i can i'm headed to the northwest by way of New Mexico, Colorado, maybe make a stop in Montana, and then I want to settle up in uh, Oregon, Seattle area, and then make my way south along the California coastline. Does not suck to be me. But anyway, uh, yeah, reach out to me. Let's let's spread the word about this sucker. Let's grow a community around Restaurant Unstoppable and people growing and sharing knowledge let's do this all right guys that's all for today thanks for sticking around this long i love you all until next time peace out